KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. President Biden will address the nation on the chaos unfolding in Afghanistan. One Navy vet says he almost feels dizzy watching the, uh, the government collapse. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Hospitalizations are up in San Diego for both COVID and non-COVID patients. Overall, there is some concern that this is unsustainable. More than a year of treating patients in a pandemic could just kind of reach a point where we really have trouble meeting demand. Oceanside battles a new citrus tree pest, and California's gubernatorial recall ballots are in the mail. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. The scenes from Kabul of people clinging to U.S. military planes and a desperate effort to escape the approaching Taliban are tragic and echo the end of another failed U.S. war. The end of the Vietnam War more than 45 years ago created the same kind of chaos in Saigon. Over the last 20 years, Marines from Camp Pendleton were deployed multiple times to Afghanistan, suffering hundreds of injuries and deaths, including a battalion which suffered the highest percentage of casualties in the war. Now, many Americans both in and out of the military are asking, how could this have happened again? Joining me is KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. Steve, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Let's talk first about the situation now in Afghanistan. President Biden will address the American people in about 40 minutes about the collapse and chaos that's taking place. KPBS will carry that address live. Steve, have U.S. troops been deployed to help the evacuation? They have. There are about 6,000 troops either in Afghanistan or headed there. That includes about 2,000 Marines. It seems that some of them are from a task force that's based at Camp Pendleton, though you know they've, they were already forward deployed sitting in Kuwait, so it's not like they were being dispatched directly from Camp Pendleton. So at this point, the Americans have taken over the airport in Kabul. Uh, they're running the military side, and they're attempting to keep the civilian side open, though there are conflicting reports uh, about whether or not any civilian flights are still leaving the, the airport. It may be all military flights at this point. The U.S. Embassy is shut down. There are photos circulating of a, a troop on, a, on board a helicopter carrying what is reported to be the flag that flew over the embassy. So everyone seems to be concentrated there at the airport at this point. Because the Taliban takeover has been so fast, give us an idea of the different kinds of American allies, aid workers, who may now be in danger. So the Defense Department estimates they have about 20,000 Americans left in Kabul, and that's over the weekend, That was so that number could have changed. A lot of criticism of the Biden administration that the State Department didn't pull more of its people out before now, recognizing that this was a possibility. 
Also, I think you're going to start hearing about Afghan Americans being trapped in Kabul. They had gone home to see family before the Americans pulled out, and they thought they had at least until September to leave, and now they may be having a hard time getting out. In the U.S., we've, we've seen groups here calling for people to host families for Afghan refugees. That's, that's if they can find a way to get to the U.S., though. Getting here is going to be a, a big part of the problem, even if somebody has a, a passport and a visa. So the U.S. military also will house people going through the SIV program over at Fort McCoy and Fort Bliss. We know that there are 20,000 people who uh, worked with the Americans and are in the pipeline for these special immigration visas, and that doesn't include family members. The Biden administration had pledged to get them out, but their ability to do that may be really limited at this point. And what do we expect could be the fate for these U.S. allies and Afghan government officials who don't get out? I mean, we're talking imprisonment, execution. So, you know, we don't know. No one knows. Uh, I don't want to join the uh, chorus of newly minted Afghan experts who have sprung up over this weekend. If we understood Afghanistan really well, I imagine this would not be happening right now. We do know that over the years, the Taliban has been brutally enforcing its will in areas under its control. Women and girls especially have been forced out of the public eye. Expect all of the Western values that we promoted to be swept away once the Taliban really consolidate power. You know, but I have to say on the flip side, I don't want to be overly optimistic. And right now, the Taliban have taken over a city of four million people by barely firing a shot so far. And this could change at any moment, could be changing right now. They have not fired on the Americans, even as more troops pour into the country. From the outside, they seem to be uh, content to let us sort of gather our people and leave. Now, this may have always been one of uh, the better outcomes for the U.S. Some people say that we should have done exactly this, maybe, maybe more than a decade ago. Now, U.S. military officials said the Afghan army was strong enough to stand up to the Taliban. Do we know how this massive miscalculation happened? Well, we do know that, I mean, if you look through the Afghanistan papers, which were published by the Washington Post back in 2019, you know, there were strong concerns uh, coming from the military in 2008 and 2009 during the Obama administration that the Afghan army would not stand up on its own and may never stand up on its own. They would fight alongside of us when we fought with them and they would stop when we pulled back. The Afghan army may have decided that they just weren't going to win in the end and there was a... There was massive corruption among the, the Afghan central government. So maybe the calculation was, why prolong this process if, if you're going to die for a cause that is just not going to go anywhere? You know, it wasn't as if this chaotic end in Kabul wasn't a possibility. I mean, you've been discussing this possibility on air for weeks now. Why wasn't there better preparation for this possible outcome? That's going to be the big question facing the Biden administration. Why didn't they admit to themselves that there was a strong possibility that this could end quite quickly? Some people say that the U.S. could have uh, declared that we are going to keep a residual force for, of a few thousand troops indefinitely, but there was no guarantee the Taliban wouldn't have started fighting the U.S. as soon as we made it clear that we were no longer planning to leave. The Taliban had no problem engaging with the Americans in the past. So the question becomes, yeah, why did the Biden administration feel so convinced that they had at least you know, six months or more? Over the last several weeks, you've been reporting on how the Camp Pendleton Marines who fought in Afghanistan are feeling about the U.S. troop withdrawal. What are you hearing now? 
So I've been talking to veterans of the war in Afghanistan from around the country really since the weekend started and 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 a lot of people this morning. Some people are heartbroken at what they're seeing. One Navy vet says he almost feels dizzy watching the uh, the government collapse. I have not heard a, a lot of voices saying we should have stayed, though. Uh, people say that uh, they were honored to serve their country and would do it again. But most of the people I talked to said that we, you know, we probably should have left Afghanistan a long time ago. They could uh, see on the ground when they were there some 5, 10, or 15 years ago that the Afghan people weren't likely to change today, tomorrow, or in another 20 years. People worry about the Afghan people, especially the people who helped the Americans while they were there. But no one really seems to have a very good answer as to, you know, what else we could have done. I've been speaking with KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. And Steve, thank you. Thanks, Maureen. Healthcare providers across San Diego are seeing their resources stretched thin amid a wave of Delta variant-related hospitalizations. But as San Diego Union-Tribune healthcare reporter Paul Sisson writes, this surge is being driven by more than just COVID infections. He joins us now with more. Paul, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. So emergency departments across the region are reporting a jump in patient traffic. What's behind this surge? Gosh, it seems like it's everything. You know, I uh, I talked to the county uh, as well as uh, a couple different hospitals last week, and you know they report increases in everything from you know obviously COVID, but additionally, uh, you know stuff like strokes and uh, broken arms, and not not only that, but but also in volumes that they tend to see more in the wintertime than the summertime. So it's a little bit of a mystery, honestly. I, I should add, uh, you know, one very uh, important piece here. Uh, it, a lot of it looks uh, like care that might have been delayed from 2020. People who might be suffering from uh, a chronic disease like diabetes who didn't come forward last year, who now just uh, are at a point where they really need to seek emergency care. I mean, is there any explanation as to why we're seeing a sharp increase in patients at this time specifically? You know, uh, there there are a lot of theories. I haven't met anyone who can perfectly explain it. But but again, the, the hospital association's take is that a lot of this is delayed care uh, that didn't come forward last year and has worsened to the point where it's turned into an emergency. Uh, you know, if you talk to uh, Scripps Encinitas out on the coast, uh, they do tend to see a larger uh, summer volume in their ER because they're close to the beach and, and it's tourism season. So there's a lot of tourists on our local beaches. So they would just tend to have more people in the area who, if they do get sick or get hurt, end up going to the closest uh, emergency department. Uh, you know, and beyond that, it's it's a little hard to quite understand why it is that, that these specific illnesses are coming forward right now. Uh, you know, everybody understands why COVID is spiking because of the, the Delta variant, but the rest of it, some of it clearly is delayed care. Some of it might be uh, tourism related, but there is a big question mark in there that isn't quite fully explained. Where in San Diego, though, are we seeing the biggest jump in patient admissions or is this increase happening across the board? From what we can tell from, from uh, you know, the hospital association definitely says it's happening across the board, that there's uh, no one hospital in particular that's uh, seeing a, a massive uh, additional increase. 
uh, you know, our busiest uh, ER perennially in San Diego County is uh, Sharp Grossmont Hospital in uh, La Mesa, and uh, they are setting records, uh, I guess, on the 9th of August. They, they had 380 total patients uh, in their ER in a single day, and going back and looking through the records, they couldn't find a day that where they had served more than that. So, uh, so this definitely is um, significant enough that it's, it's setting historical records. How are our Delta variant caseloads affecting the ability of hospitals to treat non-COVID patients? Oh, that's a, that's an interesting one. You know, overall, the uh, the hospitalization rate per number of new cases being detected in the region is lower than it was uh, pre-Delta back during the holiday surge uh, at the turn of the year, for example. Uh, but uh, th- at these days, what uh, what some folks in ERs report is uh, an increasing number of uh, folks who are unvaccinated who uh, really want to argue the point about getting vaccinated and, and may become uh, agitated. Uh, and not only that, but uh, folks who are receive, refusing to wear masks uh, when they're in emergency rooms or other parts of hospitals. Uh, and, and so, you know, that creates a constant back and forth between hospital staff and patients and creates a lot of tension uh, and stress for the healthcare workers. And we've heard a fair number of reports recently of, uh, of healthcare workers just having enough and asking to be transferred to a different department where they're not going to encounter uh, these folks uh, coming through the door or, or maybe even just uh, getting out of nursing. So, so it really does seem to be contributing to staff burnout. What are you hearing from hospital officials about their ability to address this increase in patient traffic? It depends on who you talk to. Uh, you know, definitely in the East County area, it seems like there is more concern that this really might end up snowballing as we get into normal flu season in the fall uh, and early winter. You know, I wouldn't say that it's universal concern that we're going to run out of uh, critical care health care workers. Um, but I think it's headed that direction, and it depends on on uh, which hospital you're talking to, and and you know how large of a swath of the community they care for. Uh, so, so I think I think it's fair to say that that overall there there is some pretty significant concern that this is unsustainable. The, this level of volume coming in the door, and uh, and this level of burnout that's already in in the staff. So from you know more than a year of, of treating patients in a pandemic, you know, could just kind of reach a point where, where we really have trouble uh, meeting demand. You know, we hear a lot, as you mentioned, about the potential for healthcare systems to be overwhelmed during this pandemic. It's happening in some places across the ca- uh, country. Are there concerns that will happen here in San Diego as a result of this surge? I mean, I think there are always concerns about that type of thing. Uh, you know, th- there are professionals watching uh, the situation very closely. They they really haven't spoken too often about exactly what they're seeing. You know, like the county EMS department, for example, has recently been relatively uh, silent on this matter. You know, I, I think I think they feel like there are a lot of levers that they can pull uh, to kind of mitigate this to some degree. Uh, you know, another really big issue here is that healthcare systems, by and large, rely on what they call the travel nursing pool of workers that can be brought in from other places to help fill a uh, short-term 
need. And a lot of those travelers are either refusing to work COVID wards or, uh, or are being pulled out of uh, California to places where they're even more needed than they are here. You hear a lot about, for example, Mississippi and Florida and some of the other Southern states really uh, having a demand for that kind of workforce. So it leaves us here on the West Coast a little, uh, a little uh, shallower than we might otherwise be. And uh, does the local situation mirror what's happening statewide or in other parts of the country? It seems to. Uh, I asked the California Hospital Association that uh, question, and, and they said that you know they've been in contact with their uh, national organization and have definitely noticed similar surges both across the state and uh, and nationwide. So it doesn't seem like it's just localized to San Diego per se. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune healthcare reporter Paul Sisson. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Agriculture officials have quarantined 68 square miles of land in North County, but it has nothing to do with COVID-19. An invasive bug has been found on citrus trees in the area, which is capable of destroying fruit and eventually killing the trees. There is no cure for the disease known as citrus greening, so stopping the spread is crucial to protecting both backyard growers and San Diego's commercial citrus industry. Joining me is Hot Dang. She is San Diego County Agricultural Commissioner. And Ha, welcome to the program. Thank you, Maureen. Tell us, if you would, more about this disease and the bug that causes it. This is considered the most devastating disease of citrus in the world. It is the first detection of this disease in San Diego County. And the goal is to stop the spread of the disease by working together. And the disease is fatal to citrus. It is not harmful to human and animals, and it will impact both residential citrus and also the citrus industry in San Diego. This disease uh, is transmitted by a tiny insect called the Asian citrus psyllid. 
It's the size of an aphid and it is transmitted when it feeds on an infected tree and then move on to other healthy trees. This disease would cause the um, yellowing of new shoots, uh, mottling or, or blotching, yellowing of leaves, and it produces bitter fruit that is uh, not fit for human consumption and is unmarketable. It causes the vascular system of the tree to block up, and then the tree, uh, there is no cure, as you had said, and the tree will eventually die within two to five years after getting uh, the infection. Do we know where this bug comes from? Well, this bug was first found in San Diego back in 2008. It has been found in other areas of the world, including Asia, the Arabian uh, Peninsula, and Africa. Uh, Also, it's been found in South and Central America. This pest is found in other parts of the U.S., in Florida, southern states such as Georgia and Louisiana, South Carolina, and Texas. And um, it's been found in about 28 counties in California. How was it discovered in the North County? It was discovered through uh, the California Department of Food and Agriculture Residential Sampling Program, and it was found in a residential property on two citrus trees. Now, where is the quarantine area in San Diego County? It is in Oceanside, uh, mostly. The quarantine areas is bordered on the north by Stagecoach Road in Camp Pendleton, on the south by Tamarack Road in Carlsbad, on the west by the Pacific Ocean, and on the east by North Santa Fe Avenue in Vista. And what are people forbidden to move out of the quarantined area? The uh, quarantine would require people and businesses not to move citrus trees and plant materials uh, out or of the quarantine area or into the quarantine area and across state and international borders. Now, I believe, as you said, there's no cure for this citrus greening disease. Are researchers looking for one? Yes. The strategy to um, really um, address this disease is to suppress or to limit the spread of the disease and the psyllid as much as possible while waiting for researchers to find a cure. Are agricultural officials going to be spraying trees in the area in an effort to kill this bug? Uh, Yes, this is part of the mitigation measures. Uh, They will be providing treatments free of charge to uh, residents in the affected area. How can people protect their citrus trees from this bug? Uh, they can um, inspect their trees frequently. And if they find a suspect um, insect or the suspect symptoms on the tree, they need to contact the state pest hotline, which is 1-800-491-1899. How concerned are you about what this disease could do to San Diego's citrus industry? It is considered the most devastating uh, disease for citrus. So it will be detrimental to residential citrus, causing uh, the death of the tree and the loss of the aesthetic value. It will also potentially lead to higher prices for citrus fruits and trees in the future. If 
the citrus industry is impacted. The citrus industry in San Diego is valued at $146 million, with lemon and orange as part of our top 10 crops. And then for California, that is a $3.4 billion industry that will be impacted. Do you expect this quarantine may limit uh, the infestation in San Diego County, or are you expecting to see it expand? Well, um, in early August, when the state declared the quarantine, we had two uh, infected citrus trees. Now that number has increased to eight. So there is that potential for increase, but we all need to work together to limit the spread of the pest and the disease. I've been speaking with Ha Dang, San Diego County Agricultural Commissioner. Ha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Maureen. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. San Diego County voters will soon be receiving mail ballots for the September 14th recall election. They'll be voting on whether to boot Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom from office. This comes as the Delta variant continues to threaten the state's pandemic recovery. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen explains how the vote will work and what's at stake for the Golden State. Simply put, recall elections in California are weird, unlike any other regular election. Voters will have two questions on their ballots. The first is a yes or no. Should Governor Newsom be kicked out of office? The second question is who should replace him if a majority supports the recall? So let's say a majority votes no on the recall, meaning they want Newsom to stay. Then the second question doesn't matter. But if a majority votes yes on the recall, then whoever gets the most votes in the second question becomes governor. So there is a scenario where Newsom could get, say, 5 million votes to stay governor, but 5 million and one voters want him out. Newsom leaves office, and the candidate with the most votes takes over, even if that person got fewer votes than Newsom. Like I said, recalls are weird. One of the most important things going into the recall is recognizing that it's off cycle. And when it's off cycle, meaning non-presidential, there's going to be low voter turnout. Sonia Diaz is the founding director of the UCLA Latino Policy and Politics Initiative. She says the weirdness of the recall election, it's not just an odd year, it's also in mid-September, will likely discourage less frequent voters from casting ballots. Now, that may be normal for some who have been voting in California for years and years. But as it relates to our youthful, diverse voters, that's new and novel. And there's going to need to be a concerted effort to educate voters about how to vote, how to participate, how to make sense of this ballot. Polls have consistently shown that more California voters oppose the recall than support it. But among voters who are likely to cast ballots, the split is almost even. That's because of the enthusiasm gap. Diaz says Republicans are thrilled about the chance to take control of the country's most populous state and a Democratic stronghold. And so ultimately, that can be really exciting for that segment of voters. But that is not the universe of California voters. And so what's really important to understand here is turnout. Turnout is going to dictate the outcome of September 14th. 
Another strange thing about this election is how the candidates are campaigning. By the way, there are 46 of them, plus Newsom. The governor has avoided direct engagement with the leading replacement candidates, all of whom are Republicans. And UCSD political science professor Thad Kauser says those Republican candidates aren't bothering to appeal to the political center like they would in a general election. All the Republican candidates have correctly diagnosed that this is a race they can win with 20% of the vote, right? You just have to stand out among Republicans. And the way to do that is by continuing to embrace Donald Trump, which they all have, by, by attacking things such as critical race theory and all these sort of new culture war bogeymen. If the recall is successful and a Republican takes over the governorship, the big question is how that would impact California politics. Democrats would still hold a veto-proof majority in the legislature, and that Republican governor would still face a tough re-election campaign just one year later. Kauser calls this scenario a one-year political earthquake. It'll be a proof of concept that Republicans can win and that, that, that Donald Trump messaging and rallying the base right, can win in the, the bluest of blue states. Also, the governor does have immense control over public health policies, things like vaccine and mask mandates, which the leading Republican candidates oppose. Newsom and his allies have raised more than twice as much as all of his opponents combined, according to the LA Times. But to save his political career, he'll have to translate that money into democratic enthusiasm. Andrew Bowen, KPBS News.